This is a re-release of one of our early episodes from the Emerging Minds podcast. We will be back in 2022 with a fresh series of engaging conversations about supporting children's mental health. Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. You're with Sophie Guy and today I'm speaking with Dr Priscilla Dunk-West. Priscilla is a sociologist and social worker and has worked in academia in both Australia and England. Her research interests include identity, sexuality, intimate relationships and parenting. She is currently a senior lecturer in the College of Education, Psychology and Social Work at Flinders University in South Australia. In today's episode, we discuss what inclusive practice looks like when working with children from LGBTIQ families and ways that practitioners and organisations can orient their services to be more welcoming of the growing number of rainbow families in Australia. Well, thank you very much, Priscilla, for joining me today for a podcast interview. Thanks for having me. And we're here today to talk about growing family diversity in terms of sexual orientation, maybe um, gender identity, things like that in Australian families. Mm Perhaps well, I'd like to start off, though, just by asking you a little bit about your background mm-hmm. and how you came to be working in this space. Mm-hmm. So I'm a social worker and I'm also a sociologist and I started out my work as a social worker in child protection and worked with a range of families and children, both here and uh, in the UK, in London. Um, and then I went on to specialise in sexual health counselling. So I would see couples and individuals about intimacy kind of issues or problems, sexual dysfunction and struggles with um, sexual or gender diversity. Interesting, mm. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you get into that in London or back no, here? No, I mean, I worked with, because I worked in child protection, I worked with teenagers. So often issues about, you know, sexuality, whether it was sexual behaviour or risk taking would kind of emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly for young women, for example, you know, being able to sort of navigate and negotiate their relationships as they enter into kind of adolescence Um, or later adolescence and work out who they are and what they want. Mm -hmm. So yes, those were kind of there, but this was more of a kind of specialism, which then led me to want to do a PhD. So I finished my master's and did a PhD looking at kind of day-to-day sexuality, the ways in which people reflect on and sort of live out their sexuality or sexual identity in day-to-day life. Okay. That sounds really interesting. So um, when you talk about, I mean, I wouldn't even know how you would start to talk about day-to-day sexuality. Could you talk a little bit more about Mm. what you mean about Mm. that? So we have this idea in terms of sexuality that it sort of is something that manifests in the bedroom or during sexual um, behaviour. But, you know, we also know that single people have a sexuality or people who aren't having sex or sexual interactions Um, also have a sexuality. So it's this approach to sexuality that says sexuality is something that is felt inside, but it's affected through things like, you know, the social context within which people live. Um, And sexual behaviour may not match up with people's idea of their own sexual identity. So, for example, in sexual health, Mm -hmm. historically there was sort of a term that came about because there were men who were having sex with men but were married in heterosexual relationships or in heterosexual relationships and would say, I'm not gay. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so it was this sort of this recognition that actually people's behaviour doesn't always match how they identify themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a complex kind of terrain. Mm-hmm. So this idea that sexuality only exists within relationships is sort of doesn't take into account the social and cultural context within which we live out our, our kind of identities. Uh-huh. And so when I first started interviewing people and asked them, tell me about your sexuality, people would talk about, you know, being at work and the clothes they wore and mm. the language they used and, you know, the, the way they taught their children about respectful relationships, for example. So sexuality kind of is present in our kind of micro interactions in day-to-day life Mm. and comes about through language but also symbols if you think about people wearing rings to kind of signify that they're in a relationship we have a whole lot of practices that sometimes are overlooked and we don't necessarily think about them so Mm. sexuality is something that is kind of reproduced through social interactions Mm -hmm. and uh, and then I feel like there's probably a lot of pulling apart as well of you know, we can talk about someone, someone's sexuality or sexuality, but then gender and gender identity is mm. related, but it's different mm-hmm. as well. And I think in relation to gender identity, we've, we're only just now starting to really talk about the ways in which gender can be differently connected to someone's sense of identity. So we have, you know, lots of research, historical research, for example, where, you know, there was that famous study where someone was given a baby and told this is a girl and so kind of went, oh, you're so beautiful and you're so cute and and then dressed the baby in kind of what we would consider socially as boy clothes and the ways in which somebody interacted with that baby were very different. And that kind of speaks to the attitudes that we have about gender from birth, right? So there's this kind of from birth, this socialization of gender. And we know that children who don't identify with a particular gender binary, so male or female, girl or boy, that they can struggle with that binary. And so we we talk about that as gender nonconformity in children, Mm -hmm. where there's a a sense of feeling different, feeling like that label doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. And this isn't new, but the way we're talking about it is becoming more recognised. So for example, you know, girls who didn't want to sit and play dolls were often characterised as being tomboys. Um, Mm -hmm. Boys uh, who want to dress up in girls' clothes, people can often be very shocked by that. And it speaks to the ways in which we construct gender socially. And just because something's a social construction doesn't mean that it's not real or not tangible or not powerful. Mm-hmm. It just means that these are very powerful messages that we give one another in society through our day-to-day sort of practices. Mm-hmm. Um, for some people, the idea of that has never occurred to them because they felt a, a kind of fit between the gender they were assigned at birth and the gender that they kind of live out in their day-to-day life. Yeah. But I guess identity changes across contexts as well. So the, the, the self that we present in our work or the self that we present at home or the self that we present going shopping or in more public kind of settings will differ. And in the same way sexuality or sexual identity can change over time. So I guess that's the other thing to say is that Although somebody, you know, social workers might be seeing a client who um, is a parent and has been married, we don't assume that they're straight or that they identify as heterosexual. Mm -hmm. So it's an acknowledgement that actually sexuality can change over time 
Um, and mm -hmm. gender identity can change over time or the ways in which people express their gender can change over time mm -hmm. but are always connected with the social and cultural context and historical context within which we live. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking about children who, young people who may be questioning their gender identity and if you're a practitioner or you're, you know, you're in a service, is it helpful to ha have conversations about sexuality as well or is it more helpful to sort of think of those as separate things? It's a tricky one. So, um, in fact, I was reading about this yesterday about a woman who identifies as lesbian, but then there are now people saying, well, I'm gender non-binary and I identify as lesbian. So we've always had this connection with gender and sexual identity because, you know, they're connected in terms of the way we make sense of different categories. But, you know, research from the UK with young people, people will talk about all sorts of different genders and sexualities, and they're much more kind of tangled up and deliberately kind of um, don't fall into those kind of very binary notions that we have. So mm. they're connected, but it's up to individuals to kind of recognise those connections or think about those connections. So mm -hmm. for practitioners, it's about kind of just understanding, being curious, understanding how that fits for somebody rather than putting on a kind of heteronormative lens, mm -hmm. which is the assumption that everybody is heterosexual and um, cisgendered. And cisgendered is that idea that people's um, gender identity matches their identity assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. And do you feel as though that those assumptions are still present quite a lot in even social work students and mm. social workers yeah. or practitioners out there. Yeah, so I've been working for a while in the area of kind of sexuality in social work and there's now a fairly good group of academics who do research into, for example, same-sex parents or rainbow families that we might term them as, um, people who don't fit that kind of heteronormative um, conceptualisation. So I think for social workers it's really important to understand that not only are families changing and configurations of families are changing, but that they've got to start from a point of really trying to understand rather than assume that somebody's family or conceptualisation of family fits within a certain you know, framework or way of thinking. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different types of family diversity now that social workers should be aware of. Okay, is it helpful to sort of identify and say there's these kinds of families and these kinds of families for the purpose of this interview or is that not really a helpful thing to say? Yeah, I mean, I think um, this, this kind of umbrella term of rainbow families is a way that some families will talk about themselves. So we know a couple of years ago during this awful kind of period in Australian history where children of parents who were same-sex parents or gender non-conforming or trans um, found themselves in the kind of, you know, spotlight and being questioned about their rights to um, marriage equality. And so we know through research that that had really profound impacts on people. There's been historical research that's looked at the ways in which queer people or people who are non-heterosexual think about their relationships, their families. So, for example, we have a very biologically driven way of thinking about family, right? Mm -hmm. You know, your mum, your dad, your uncle, which is your the brother of your mother or the brother of your father, that very traditional way of thinking about family. And often social workers will want to rely upon these 
bio-narratives, if you like. Mm -hmm. So some research from the 80s kind of looked at this idea of families of choice, and that was because when people came out as being non-heterosexual, or we can say non-conforming in terms of gender, that their families rejected them. The families, that their birth families rejected them. But that what happens in queer communities is that people develop relationships with friends that are family, become family. And so this idea of families of choice kind of came about. So talking to people about who are the significant people in your life? Mm -hmm. You know, how are you connected to them? Are they, you know, what do you think about as family? Is a useful Mm -hmm. kind of starting point rather than relying on that biological kind of narrative. Mm. And so are these sorts of approaches to practice being taught in in the social work courses now? Yeah, I think they are increasingly mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of kind of traditional tools that we use in social work. So we have this, you know, the genogram mm-hmm. uh, where we have this map of way of mapping. Um, but, you know, these tools can be adapted so that they're not about biological connections, but about meaningful connections that people have in their lives mm-hmm. so we can we can adapt those tools if you like okay we sort of have some broad principles at emerging minds that we've gotten some consensus around um, in terms of what we think is sort of helpful practice and one of them is this idea of child focused and parent sensitive mm-hmm. i wonder if you could talk a bit about what pe- child focused and parent sensitive practice looks like with rainbow families mm-hmm. so I guess the first thing is not making assumptions and and coming from a point of being, or coming from a perspective of being genuinely curious about the child's world. So who are the significant people in their life? I suppose I'm coming at it from the child-centered perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think in terms of social workers and social work students, I think the skills that that requires is the use of imagination, right? Being able to imagine life through a child's perspective, through a child's eyes, you know, seeing who are the connections they have. Are they significant people who live close by? Are they people who live in a household with the child? So often we have these ideas of, you know, families all having to live under the same roof, but we know that the ways in which families are configured can sometimes include co-parenting relationships, can include new partners into the into the mix. And so those people might become you know, significant to them. We used to talk about, you know, step families. But thinking Mm -hmm. about significant people in the child's life, I think, is a really important step and requires that sense of imagination and curiosity. Mm -hmm. So they're the kind of the key ingredients, I guess, that social work students and social workers need to kind of look at Mm -hmm. understanding, better understanding kind of rainbow families. Okay. I suppose the other thing is to always bear in mind and this kind of speaks to being parent sensitive, is to bear in mind that we do live in a society that is discriminatory against rainbow families. Mm -hmm. So although we have marriage equality, it's very new, uh, it's Mm. very contested. We know there's still homophobia, there's still violence. Mm -hmm. Um, We know there's a fallout emotionally from families who have been affected by this, you know, very public debate about their lives. Mm -hmm. And so being parent sensitive means not being heteronormative, not not making assumptions, but really seeking to understand what are the key connections that parents have. So we can be parent sensitive in terms of if we see the primary couple, but we know that people sometimes have relationships with more than one person. Mm-hmm. So polyamory, for example, mm-hmm. or co-parenting relationships. So just because people 
aren't parenting together in the same space doesn't mean that they don't still have a really good relationship with the person who was once their intimate partner. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, that's a relationship. And so being parent sensitive in, in, involves kind of acknowledging that those connections exist mm -hmm. and working with people to, to strengthen those connections from the child's perspective, if that makes sense. So it's not an either or, they have to go hand in hand. Yep. And could you even give some examples of how you might ask those questions? Like I suppose with a kid, you know, might the, the assumption, the heteronormative would be like, so who's your mum, who's yes. your dad? Yeah. Or, you know, to someone presenting a parent, are you married? Mm -hmm. what, what are some alternative questions mm. to start that conversation? Because mm. it can be tricky if you're yeah. not, if you haven't done it before. Yep. Yeah, you can feel awkward kind of mm. changing your language. Mm -hmm. so. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, it depends on the age of the child, but, you know, sometimes practitioners will use drawings and can you tell me about, can you tell me about special people in your life? And, you know, if you're asking a five-year-old, that could include their family pet. Um, and so kind of recognising what they see as important connections in their life and being curious and asking, you know, tell me about that and tell me about this person and, and what do you do together? And those sorts of things just help to flesh out, if you like, the kind of connections that children have with significant people. So not starting with, who's your mum? Who's your dad? Because you can imagine if, it, if, you, if it's a child who comes from a family where there are same-sex parents or parents who identify in terms of being gender diverse, that that immediately is going to kind of set up this awkwardness between a practitioner and a child. Mm -hmm. It's going to give the message that that's not somehow normal. Mm -hmm. um, so really not engaging in that kind of heteronormative way of thinking or mm -hmm. the fixed binary way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about some examples with parents, mm. with adults? Mm. So um, sometimes organisations will, will use kind of a, a kind of written thing where they'll get people to write about their relationships or write about their gender identity. Mm -hmm. So making sure at the very beginning point that organisations have a very flexible kind of tool that is able to capture people's experiences. So if you're filling out a form and the only box is male or female, that immediately gives the message that this is an organisation that isn't aware of gender diversity or gender nonconformity mm -hmm. or um, trans issues. And so immediately that sets up a barrier. So making sure that those kind of intake forms are there I think if you've got somebody who's not, you know, who is cisgendered, it also gives the message, this is an organisation that welcomes, you know, rainbow families. Mm -hmm. This is an organisation that understands, you know, sexual identity and gender diversity. Mm -hmm. So it sets it up not only for people who are part of that rainbow community, but sets it up for people who aren't to give that kind of I guess it's role modelling, I guess it's saying, yeah. you know, these are our values as an organisation. Yeah. So that's the kind of first step. I guess the second step is about then looking at the form, interpreting it and asking questions of somebody. So for example, you know, saying, do you have a partner or partners? Gives mm -hmm. somebody the opportunity to kind of talk about their key relationships or key relationship if they have one. So being open and asking those questions, I think, as I said, kind of gives the message that A, this practitioner is open and understands the range of diversities that exist in our society, mm -hmm. and B, makes people feel welcomed. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Hmm. I was going to ask you also about the 
the change in law and marriage equality mm. and what sorts of flow-on effects have you seen mm. as a result of that, good and bad? Mm. I think um, it's so early to know what the fallout is. I know there's some research that's happening at the moment to look at what have been the impacts, but we know that people's people who are affected in terms of you know, identifying as being queer or lesbian or gay or bisexual or trans or gender non-conforming, um, that, that this, this group of people accessed services to help with the impacts of that. So having one's personal life just debated and discussed very publicly, I think was incredibly damaging. And so, you know, we, we, do, we don't know yet really what the what the longer term effects are, but we know mm. that people, for example, may have become ostracised from their family of origin. So they may have stopped okay. talking to people, they may have um, lost friends, mm. but at the same time, they may have also gained a sense of community and, mm. uh, and kind of found strength in community. Yeah. And that's where the kind of families of choice kind of concept is really useful to understand that. Yeah. Mm. Could you talk a bit about, bit more about this families of choice idea? Is it something that you hear people referring to more so in rainbow families? Is, it, is that kind of where it originated in? It did. Yeah. So it originated through the work of Geoffrey Weeks who from the UK. Mm -hmm. He's one of the key kind of thinkers in this area. And it was, it, it, it's less used now as a kind of concept but I think it's an important one because it speaks to the strength of connections that people have in light of perhaps times when they were ostracised from their birth family or family of origin. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a way of recognising that, yes, that, you know, we live in a kind of, you know, homophobic and heteronormative society, mm -hmm. but it's not all bad because what people do is they find resilience through alternate relationships with people who are significant. Mm -hmm. And whether that's community, a sense of community. And so, you know, we talk about the rainbow community as though it was this, you know, very clear, lovely, fun community. But of course there are tensions between different members of this, these communities. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a way in which people's resilience could be acknowledged and that we could better understand key relationships that people have. Okay. I'm wondering about the social and emotional well-being of children who mm -hmm. come from rainbow families. And you mentioned something when we spoke on the phone about how mm. there's research that suggests they're actually, they actually fare mm. better. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. So I've co-edited two book collections where we kind of showcase research around gender and intimacy kind of research in, uh, from the UK, Australia and lots of other places. Mm. and. There's been a couple of studies that we've included in those collections, but it's generally found that children from same-sex parents fare better than children from um, opposite-sex parents. Okay. And I kind of like that finding because people's assumption sometimes is that there must be an impact on the child or how is that for them or that's fine for people to, to have, you know, same-sex relationships, but what about the children? And so people can go into this kind of narrative, which is very problematizing and heteronormative, I guess. And so that kind of findings just kind of says, actually, we're doing fine. And um, it is on a range of kind of, you know, emotional well-being in terms of being able to articulate oneself, feeling happy with life, mm -hmm. feeling loved, 
all of those ingredients we know are important for children's development. So it doesn't matter um, really mm. someone's sexual identity. It's about, you know, what a child needs. Yeah, yeah, okay. You talked a little bit about what services can do to practice in a more inclusive way, for example, through you know the forms and the way we ask people about their gender identity. Mm-hmm. Is there anything more to add to that? And I'm also wondering, are there things that you can identify that are barriers to services mm. doing this? Mm. You know, one of the things that's kind of emerging is that when you introduce yourself, you say what your pronouns are. So my name's Priscilla and my pronouns are she and her. Um, so that I show that that's my gender identity. So for some organisations that means, you know, role modelling that behaviour mm-hmm. um, in terms of just introductions. The other concept that's quite helpful in social work is when we're working with diverse families is think about being an ally, like what being an ally looks like. So if somebody is not part of a particular part of a rainbow community, so gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, mm-hmm. asexual, that being a good ally means kind of sitting back and listening to the needs of that particular group and learning from that particular group rather than, you know, thinking that you know it all or, you know, but actually sitting back and listening. And I think that's really important, particularly with Indigenous queer voices and lots of different ways that those identities can intersect with culture, um, sexual identity, gender identity, you know, disability, those sorts of other aspects of identity. Mm-hmm. So organisations, if, if they want to be more queer friendly or rainbow family friendly, um, can do a lot in terms of the symbols that they display. So having a rainbow, being rainbow tick accredited, those sorts of things are practices that organisations can do to show a sense of allyship mm-hmm. and to show this is a welcoming space. So that kind of physical environment is important as well as the forms, the practices, the policies, you know, the stance sometimes that organisations will take. So people kind of saying, you know, and you see this in organisations where people will put up something saying, you know, we don't kind of tolerate homophobia or we believe. So those value statements are important. So it's the kind of physical, the procedural, and then the value base. So those kind of three aspects, I think, help organisations to be more kind of inclusive. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Priscilla, for coming in and talking to me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds and delivered in partnership with the Australian Institute of Family Studies, the Australian National University, the Parenting Research Centre and the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.